Welcome to the Sermon Audio Podcast of Hill Country Bible Church, Georgetown. The podcast bringing you biblical messages that encourage you to put Christ at the center of everyday life. We're here to help you engage in the local church and to invite you into a life that matters through Jesus. If you have any questions about your next step, visit us online at hillcountry.life. And now for today's message. So I want to begin this morning with a little story I ran across many, many years ago. The year was 1921, and a young missionary couple by the name of David and Svea Flood set out from Sweden with their two-year-old son to the heart of Africa, to what was then called the Belgian Congo. And upon their arrival, they met up with another young Scandinavian couple, the Ericssons, and the four of them gathered together and sought the Lord for direction in their ministry. Well, after much prayer, they sensed the Lord leading them to set out from the main missionary station and take the gospel to a remote area. And this was a huge step of faith because the village they were headed toward, Endolera, was steeped in pagan worship, and the chief of the village wouldn't even let them enter for fear of alienating the local gods. The two couples were immediately chased out of town, but determined to follow God's leading, they opted to build their own mud huts a half a mile outside of the village. And they prayed for days and weeks and months on end for some type of spiritual breakthrough with these villagers, but nothing happened. The only contact they had with the people of Endelera was a young boy who was allowed to come and sell them chickens and eggs twice a week. And Svea Flood, a tiny woman, only four foot eight inches tall, decided that if this is the only African she could talk to, she would try to lead the young boy to Jesus. And in fact, she succeeded. But there were no other encouragements. Malaria continually struck one member after another of this tiny missionary band. And in times, the Ericsons decided they had had enough and left to return to the central mission station. But David and Svea Flood, determined to follow God's leading, remained on on their own near Andalera. They were sick, discouraged, and disheartened, but they pressed on. Then of all things, Svea Flood discovered she was pregnant in the middle of this primitive wilderness. When the time came for her to give birth, the village chief softened enough to allow a midwife to help her out, and a little girl named Aina was born. But the delivery itself was exhausting and dealt a heavy blow to the stamina of Svea, who was already weakened from bouts of malaria. She died just 17 days after the birth of their baby girl. And it was at that moment that something inside David Flood snapped. He dug a crude grave, buried his 27-year-old wife, and took his children down the mountain and back to the mission station. He handed his newborn daughter to the Ericsons and snarled, I'm going back to Sweden. I've lost my wife and I obviously can't take care of this baby. God has ruined my life. And with that, he headed for the port, rejecting not only his calling, but God himself. Less than a year later, word came that the Ericsons were stricken with a mysterious malady and died within days of each other. The young baby had to be turned over to some American missionaries who eventually brought her back to the United States. And David Flood, now living in Sweden, dissipated his life with alcohol and established one rule in his household. Never mention the name of God because God took everything from me. Now, that is not the kind of encouraging story you would expect to kick off a sermon, is it? But people, it's a a true story. 
And if you'll bear with me this morning, I think you'll see that even in stories such as this, God has something to teach us. I mean, very few of us here in this room, if any of us, will make the kind of sacrifice these young missionaries did. Make no mistake about it, these young couples loved the Lord. They offered everything they had up to him, and it cost them nearly everything. For three of the four, it cost them their lives. And as for the survivor, he lost his wife, he lost his baby daughter, he even lost his faith in the process. So what do we do when living the Christian life doesn't lead to a happy ending, when God doesn't answer our prayers the way we like, when we're in the midst of great hardship and heartache? Yeah, there are positive endings. There are happy endings this side of eternity. But God never pretends in the Bible that it'll always work out that way. In Hebrews 11, we're given this list of some of the heroes of the faith in the Bible. And we've been talking about several of them in this series. Some of these individuals experienced tremendous victories in their ministry here on earth. I mean, Abraham was promised descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky. Moses triumphantly led the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt. Joshua saw the walls come tumbling down. But <clears throat> Hebrews 11.35 says, Others were tortured. Some faced jeers and flogging while still others were chained and put in prison. They were stoned. They were sawed in two. They were put to death by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. These were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised. Well, you and I know the Christian life is filled with ups and downs. And quite frankly, some of us may be called to experience a few more downs than ups. I mean, I think of Job in the scriptures, who was caught in the midst of this cosmic spiritual showdown between Satan and God. Or Jeremiah, whose claim to fame is what? The title, the weeping prophet. Even Jesus himself is said to have learned obedience through what he suffered. So if we're to be like Jesus, we should expect trials. And this morning, believe it or not, I do want to encourage you. And I want to encourage you to persevere in the storms of life. You're going to face tough times. And when you do, you'll have a choice to make. You can either run or you can stand firm in God's strength. You can either give up or trust in him. Now, tucked away in the Old Testament, there's this story of an incredible man of God who is going through a very difficult season in his life. His name was Elijah. He was actually renowned by the Jews as the greatest prophet next to Moses. And the Bible gives us a very personal glimpse into Elijah's struggles. I believe God allows us to feel his pain in this particular passage. In fact, psychologists have cited this narrative as a clear case of clinical depression in Scripture. And many of us know what it's like to be depressed in life, to have those ups and downs. So as we read this, I think we can relate to Elijah's struggles, his feelings of frustration and abandonment. But what's really cool in this passage is that we get to see God's side of things as well. We see how God reacts to Elijah's pain. We see what God is doing in the midst of these trials. And before we read this passage, I need to tell you that this prophet Elijah, he walked very, very faithfully with the Lord. And he actually experienced some blessings throughout his lifetime. In fact, the context of this particular passage we're going to read has Elijah coming off a giant spiritual victory. So it's not as if we're dealing with some sort of spiritually immature believer, someone who's backslidden in his walk with the Lord. Elijah had just challenged 850 false prophets, prophets of Baal, 
to this competition on Mount Carmel, okay? And the, the thing was, they were going to have this spiritual showdown up there between their gods, Baal and Asherah and Jehovah, the God of Israel, to see who was the one true God. Elijah was going to prove to everyone there that Baal and Asherah, they're not real gods, they're just idols. And the Israelites should turn back to the God of Israel. Well, the God of Israel showed up powerfully on Mount Carmel. In fact, so much so that the people actually followed the command of Moses, they put to death the false prophets. So it was this incredible day of spiritual victory for Israel, for Elijah. But then we pick up the story in 1 Kings chapter 19. Listen carefully. It says, now Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, may the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like one of them. Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. When he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there while he himself went a day's journey into the desert. He came to a broom tree, sat down under it and prayed that he might die. I've had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors. Then he lay down under the tree and fell asleep. All at once, an angel touched him and said, get up and eat. He looked around and there by his head was a cake of bread baked over hot coals and a jar of water. He ate and drank and then lay down again. The angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, get up and eat for the journey is too much for you. So he got up and ate and drank. Strengthened by that food, he traveled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. There he went into a cave and spent the night. And the word of the Lord came to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, broken down your altars and put your prophets to death with a sword. I'm the only one left and now they're trying to kill me too. The Lord said, go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord for the Lord is about to pass by. <clears throat> then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face and went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. And then a voice said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, broken down your altars, put your prophets to death with the sword. I'm the only one left. And now they're trying to kill me too. And the Lord said to him, go back the way you came and go to the desert of Damascus. When you get there, anoint Haziel king over Aram. Also anoint Jehu, son of Nimshi, king over Israel, and anoint Elisha, son of Shaphat, from Abel-Meholah, to succeed you as prophet. Jehu will put to death any who escaped the sword of Hazael, and Elisha will put to death any who escaped the sword of Jehu. Yet I reserve 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed down to Baal, and all whose mouths have not kissed him. Okay, that's a big story there. But in a nutshell... <clears throat> King Ahab's wife, Jezebel, was a devout worshiper of Baal. And she was like a ticking time bomb ready to go off when she heard that Elijah had inspired the Israelites to destroy the prophets of Baal. 
So the queen sends a message to Elijah, swearing that within 24 hours, he would be a dead man. And I think what happened is Elijah looked around at his circumstances, and they looked pretty bleak. I mean, he saw his own countrymen rejecting God's covenants, tearing down the altars of the Lord, worshiping Baal, putting God's prophets to death. He felt like he was the only one taking a stand for God. And somewhere between that great victory in 1 Kings chapter 18 and 1 Kings chapter 19, Elijah exchanged faith for fear. And so he takes off. He starts running. For 40 days and 40 nights, Elijah runs. But I think the most significant lessons in this passage, they don't revolve around what Elijah says and does, but rather how God reacts to Elijah's struggles. Because Elijah may have given up on God, God had not given up on Elijah. 2 Timothy 2.13 says, when we are faithless, when our faith runs out, he remains faithful for he cannot deny himself. People, when the storms of life come crashing in, the biggest mistake we can make is to doubt God's love for us. God's love, write this down, should serve as the primary anchor in the midst of the storms of life. I think the reason Christians today don't love God more, don't give their lives more to him, don't serve him more, is because they don't understand how much God loves them. God is love. We love because he first loved us. The love of God compels us. The scriptures go on and on about this. God's love should serve as that primary anchor in the storms of life. The Lord says to his children, I love you with an everlasting love. God's love doesn't run out. It lasts forever. And I believe it jumps right off the pages in this particular story. I mean, Elijah runs, God strengthens. Elijah hides, God provides. Elijah runs again, God waits patiently. In fact, God provided sustenance so he wouldn't collapse. All along, God is with Elijah. Now, the text says that Elijah came to a cave on Mount Horeb. And I think this cave that Elijah fell asleep in may have been a more sacred spot than he realized. Because the Hebrew manuscript here, it can be read, Elijah came to the cave. The cave. Many scholars believe that this is a reference to the very cleft in the rock where God revealed his glory to Moses some 500 years earlier. So God comes to this very depressed, very discouraged man and says, what are you doing here? Elijah, what are you doing here? And then God patiently listens to Elijah's list of complaints toward him, right? I've been very zealous for you, Lord. Your people have rejected you. Your people are busy tearing down your worship centers, putting guys like me, the prophets, to death. And I'm the only one left. And in case you hadn't heard, they're about to take me out too. And the undertone here is very clear. Don't you care, Lord? Don't you care? And how does God respond to Elijah? It's amazing. He could have rebuked him, just set him straight right there on the spot. Elijah probably knew he wasn't the only one left of God's faithful remnant, but you know how it is when you're down, when you're depressed. You just see the negative side of things. Well, God doesn't chastise Elijah in this moment for his lack of faith. He just listens. He understands. He empathizes. Now I look at this and think, what a wonderful demonstration of God's love and patience towards those who are hurting. And when we talk about the love of God, let's make sure we're all on the same page here because if you're thinking about the love of God as God making everything easy and comfortable for experiencing, 
You're not going to find that in the storms of life. And by the same token, if you think love is just experiencing some warm, fuzzy feeling, that's not true biblical love. 1 Corinthians 13 gives us a great description of love. It talks about love in terms of patience, kindness, forgiveness, self-sacrifice. That's the kind of love God exhibits. Love is not a feeling. Love encompasses the whole of our being, our intellect, our emotions, our will. The bottom line is love is an action word. Love is actually better illustrated than defined. That's why when you look to the gospels, Jesus didn't just go around telling people he loved them. He showed it by his actions. And I believe God still teaches us today about love through different experiences in our life. God teaches us about his love through our experiences. In fact, for me, one of the most profound insights in the lo- to the love of God in my life was the birth of my firstborn child, my son, Nicholas. It had a huge, huge impact on me. You see, when Wendy and I first got married, we had actually talked about never having kids. And nothing against children, but we had discussed the need to be freed up in case God might call us to a foreign mission field or something along those lines. Plus, we were doing junior high ministry at the time, which is a great form of birth control. <laughs> but, <clears throat> but, <laughs> but it wasn't the teenage years that scared me the most. You know what it was? The early childhood years. And I'm not just talking about changing diapers either, Okay. I remember one night, Wendy and I, we were newly married, and, and my brother invited us over to have dinner with the family. And I had the privilege that evening of sitting next to my little nephew who was eating his food in his high chair, right to my right here. I still remember it vividly. It was the grossest experience of my life. Because apparently the only way to feed a toddler is like plopping down piles of mashed food on a tray and then letting them paint their face with it or something. And I can remember watching my nephew squeeze like yams in his hands and they're like shooting through his fingers and he's talking to them. And the sick part is everyone else thinks this is cute, right? And I'm over here trying really hard just to digest my steak. And, and all of a sudden my little nephew gets real excited and starts slamming food into his ears. And at that point in time, I literally, food splattering. I have to look this way. I cannot look over here. I can't stand the sight of a little kid with 10 pounds of yams dripping out of his ears. And then my sister-in-law gives him jello. Okay. Adults can't even eat jello. I mean, it was not pretty. And I'll never forget, you know, we take out of there on the drive home, Wendy's wiping food off of her clothes, and I'm thinking, Lord, send me to the mission field. Send me to the mission field. Well, God has a sense of humor, so instead he sent me to a delivery room. Yeah. And it started with just three of us. I remember it was Wendy, me, and the doctor. I was right there. Okay, I wasn't off in the lobby reading Pro Football Weekly. I was there. And then all of a sudden, there were four of us in that room. And I went ballistic. I mean, it was the most incredible experience of my life. I got so excited, I ran out of the room into the hallway to call Wendy and let let her know what had just happened, right? (laughs) For some reason, she wasn't home. And so I I just kept running up and down the hallways, rejoicing with complete strangers, high-fiving, and I, and I remember the doctor had said to me at that moment, hey, I'm sorry, but one of you has to die. But like, pick me, pick me. I'd say the same thing today. I love my son more than I could have imagined possible. And I still recall uh, in, in that moment, the doctor turning to me and saying, hey, dad, would you like to hold your baby? And I thought, are you kidding me? No, I, <laughs> he looks a little slippery to me, you know, cl- clean him up a bit and, 
If you've never seen a newborn, they look like a Vaseline smeared weasel or something like that, basically. <laughs> I'm probably the only person in the history of mankind that said no to holding their baby. From the... But eventually they cleaned up little E.T. And, uh... <laughs> and I, can, I, I can remember it as if it's just like yesterday. Is holding my baby for the first time. And again, it's, it's impossible really to express in words the experience of that love, the experience in that moment. But it dawned on me that if God's love for me is anything like the love that a father has for his child, it's some powerful stuff. You see, we can study love and we can try to define love, but when you experience it, it sticks with you. And you know what? As Christians, God considers himself to be our heavenly father. So if you're a parent and you're wondering, how much does God love me? Take the love that you have for your child and multiply it by infinity because God is infinite. And that's how much God loves you. Okay, back to our story. So Elijah stood on the very mountain where God had once described himself to Moses as the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. And the Lord tells Elijah something very similar. Go outside, stand on the mountain. I'm coming down to personally encourage you. The God of the universe, the Almighty, was humbling himself to bring a message to his child. Wow. And if you'll get alone with God, be still and listen. He wants to do the same for you. He wants to encourage you when you're down. And notice in this passage that God came to Elijah gently. I mean, he can and has revealed his power through strong winds, earthquakes, fires. But this text says the Lord was not in the wind, not in the earthquake, not in the fire. Instead, God came down with a gentle whisper. It says, after the fire came a gentle whisper. The Hebrew term gentle there means a thin, subdued voice. When we're depressed, when we're overwhelmed, God deals gently with us. So when you face trying circumstances in your life, the number one rule of thumb is to never forget that God is love. 1 John 4, 8. God is love. Steady yourself with the anchor of God's love for you. There's a second anchor in the storms of life, and that is God's provision See, God has promised to provide for his children, whatever the need. Somehow, Elijah bought into this lie that Jezebel could harm him. The scripture says Elijah was afraid. All right, something in the threat of Jezebel caused the prophet to believe that his situation was just too difficult. And so Elijah cries out, take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors. In other words, you might as well kill me because just like the prophets before me, I'm never going to see Israel turn back to you. It would be better for you to take me out than Jezebel. And again, how does God respond to Elijah's irrational cry? By providing for his needs, physically, emotionally. Hey, Elijah, how about some fresh bread? Just baked it for you. Here's a jug of water to quench your thirst. And then God let him get some rest. I think sometimes God knows that we just need some time to let things sink in, to back off, get a little perspective. God is just showing Elijah here that he's in control, that he can provide. The Lord is basically saying, Elijah, you're tired. I get it. In fact, I'm going to give you some rest. 
I'm going to bring a new guy off the bench to help you out. His name is Elisha. And he'll play backup prophet for a while. And then one day he'll be first string. I will provide for you. In 1 Corinthians 10, 13, God says, no temptation has seized you except what is common to man. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. Now, part of God's provision here, this is important. Part of God's provision is God's protection. The Bible says, God is your refuge. I love that. God is your refuge. And underneath you are the everlasting arms. That word picture is incredible. The arms of God holding you up. Elijah needed a reminder that until God said otherwise, nobody could harm him. Jezebel held no power over him, none. And we're, we're afraid, we need to remember that there's not a molecule in this universe that's outside of God's ultimate power and control. Yes, he allows free will and bad things happen, but God is still sovereign. Youth pastor Doug Fields once told a story about how he came to understand God as his protector in life. He said that one day he was driving along and he pulled up to a stoplight. And as he was there at the stoplight, he happened to glance over his left shoulder and he saw this little boy, probably about four years old, sticking his face out the window and kind of making faces. And Doug's first thought was, surely that little kid's not making faces at me. But then he glanced over again and sure enough, the kid was sticking his tongue out at him, making noises, hand gestures, the whole bit. And Doug said, I don't know why stuff like that bothers adults. It's like a breakdown in rational thought, but I wanted to reach out, unscrew my antenna, and just smack the kid with it. But then he said he looked at who was driving the car. He said Neanderthal man was driving this car. <laughs> Had a tank top, huge muscles, you know, tattoo of a pit bull with I hate mom underneath. It was that kind of guy, right? <laughs> Big old dude. And so basically... This little four-year-old looks over at dad and then looks over at pencil neck pastor over here and just keeps on making faces. And Doug said, what's his ego healed up a little bit? He actually started to laugh about that whole situation because he thought, you know why that little boy could act that way? Because he knew who was in the driver's seat, right? That boy lived with confidence. And Doug said, God used that story in my life to say, Doug, if you put me in the driver's seat of your life, you can live with that kind of confidence, knowing I'm going to protect you. Elijah needed to remember who was in the driver's seat. It wasn't Jezebel. And we need that same lesson as well. Don't bail on God. When you're going through tough times, God has promised to either provide a way out or provide you the strength to stand up under it. And that's the final anchor in the storms of life. It's the simple fact that God has a plan for your life you got to trust in God's plan. When you're facing tough times, you can't afford to forget that God has a plan and that he promises for his children, it'll work out for the good. Romans 8.28 says, and we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him. Now, this plan includes the actions of people, believers and unbelievers. Yes, it includes good works and it includes evil works. It includes the choices we make, even our mistakes. God planned for Elijah's little runaway from home here, and it worked out. Now, how God works all things together for good is a mystery. How he can take through the free will he gives, the good choices people make, the evil choices that people make, and sovereignly craft them together into a perfect plan, that's beyond tracing out. But the Bible promises that he will do just that. 
And in fact, at the end of the story, God even gives Elijah a little glimpse into his plan, doesn't he? It includes two new kings and a new prophet to straighten out Israel. And some of God's plan, Elijah was able to see in his lifetime. He mentored the new prophet, Elisha. He saw King Ahab removed from the throne. But some of God's plan, he didn't live to see. The evil Jezebel was still inspiring Israel to follow after Baal. She wasn't killed until after Elijah was taken up to heaven. Hear me on this. God's perfect plan is something we've got to take by faith. We've got to accept it by faith, not by sight. See, God knows more than we know. We don't see all that God sees. We don't know what God knows. God sees all of eternity in a single glance. The Apostle Paul once said this, for us here on earth, we see but a poor reflection as in a mirror. But one day, one day, we're gonna see it all clearly. It's gonna be amazing. You know, God reminds us of our limited perspective in this story when Elijah cries out, I'm the only one left who's faithful to you. God says, well, you're a little off there, Elijah. I actually have 7,000 people who have not bowed down to Baal. I've still got my guys down there. The battle's not over. Don't give up on my plan. And, and the truth is, we often don't know what in the world God is up to when we're going through trials, when we're going through pain, when we're going through tough times, struggles in our life. But God says, I love you, I'll provide for you, and I've got a plan. Trust me. Trust me. So what about the young missionary couples who sacrificed so much for the Lord? What was God's perfect plan in their life? Well, leave it to God to work out something pretty remarkable. Let me read to you, as Paul Harvey would say, the rest of the story. The young baby born to David and Sophia Flood, now named Aggie, grew up in the States, attended a Bible college, and married a man who later became the president of a Christian college in the Seattle area. And while she was always intrigued by her Scandinavian heritage, it never struck her until one day when a Swedish religious magazine accidentally appeared in her mailbox. Of course, she couldn't read the words, but as she turned the pages, all of a sudden, a photo stopped her cold. There in a primitive setting was a grave with a white cross, and on the cross were the words, Sphia Flood. Aggie jumped into her car and went to a college faculty member who she knew could translate the article. What does this say, she demanded. The professor quickly summarized the story. Well, it's about missionaries who had come to Endelera a long time ago, the birth of a white baby, the death of the young mother, the one little African boy who had been led to Christ, and how after the whites had all left, the boy had grown up and finally persuaded the chief to let him build a school in the village. The article said that gradually he won all his students to Christ. The children led their parents to Christ. Even the chief himself had become a Christian. Today, there were 600 believers in that one village, all because of the sacrifice of David and Sophia Flood. Not long after this discovery, Aggie traveled to Sweden and sought to find her real father. An old man now, David Flood, had remarried, fathered four more children, and basically drank his life away. He had also recently suffered a stroke and was very ill. And after an emotional reunion with her half-brothers and half-sister, Aggie brought up the subject of seeing her father. Her siblings were hesitant. You can talk to him, 
But you need to know that whenever he hears the name of God, he flies into a rage. But Aggie was not to be deterred. She walked into the tiny apartment with liquor bottles everywhere and approached the frail 73-year-old man lying in a rumpled bed. Papa, she said tentatively. He turned and began to cry. Aina, he said, I never meant to give you away. It's all right, Papa, she replied, taking him gently in her arms. God took care of me. The man instantly stiffened. The tears stopped and he said, God forgot all of us. Our lives have been like this because of him. He bitterly turned his face back to the wall, but Aggie stroked his face and continued undaunted. Papa, I've got a little story to tell you, and it's a true one. You didn't go to Africa in vain. Mama didn't die in vain. The little boy you want to the Lord grew up to win that whole village to Jesus Christ. The one seed you planted just kept growing and growing. Today, there are 600 African people serving the Lord because you were faithful to the call of God in your life. Papa, Jesus loves you. He's never hated you. The old man turned back to look into the eyes of his daughter. His body relaxed and he began to talk. And by the end of that afternoon, he had come back to the God he resented for so many decades. Over the next few weeks, <coughs> father and daughter enjoyed warm moments together. And then just a few weeks later, David Flood had gone into eternity. A few years later, Aggie Hurst was attending a world evangelism conference where a report was given from the nation of Zaire, okay, the former Belgian Congo. The superintendent of the national church representing some 110,000 baptized believers spoke eloquently of the gospel spread in his nation. And Aggie could not help going to him afterwards to ask if he'd ever heard of David and Sphia Flood. Yes, madam, it was Sphia who led me to Jesus Christ. I was the boy who brought food to your parents before you were born. In fact, to this day, your mother's grave and her memory are honored by all of us. They embraced in a sobbing hug, and he said, you must come to Africa to see, because your mother is the most famous person in our history. In time, Aggie and her husband traveled to the tiny village, being welcomed by cheering throngs of villagers. She even met the man who had been hired by her father many years before to carry her back down the mountain in a hammock cradle. But the most powerful moment was when the pastor escorted Aggie to see her mother's white cross for herself. She knelt in the soil to pray and give thanks as the pastor read from John 12, verse 24. I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. He then followed with Psalm 126, 5, those who sow in tears will reap with songs of joy. Let me ask you, what trials, what hardships are you facing in your life this morning? Do you feel like Elijah, depressed, confused, thinking God unkind, unfair, distant, disinterested? Whatever your trial, let me encourage you to persevere. As James said, consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance, and perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete. 
God's desire in trials is for you to persevere and so become mature in your faith. Take these promises to heart. Anchor your life in these three truths. First, God's love for you, it's beyond comprehension. And he feels your pain. He proved it when he died on the cross. Second, God is big enough to protect you and he's promised to provide for you. And third, whatever your trial, it will result in good in the end if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, even if you don't live to see it. Be patient. Pray about all things and don't give up on him. He's promised to never give up on you. Let's pray. Lord, I want to thank you that we can call you our heavenly father. And whether we had a good earthly father or a horrible earthly father, you are a perfect, loving, patient, caring, gracious father. God, I thank you that we can know that no matter how difficult life becomes for us, you promised to love us as a father, protect us as a father, lead us as a father. And I want to thank you for those anchors that can guard our soul during the stormy seasons of life, knowing your love, knowing your provision, knowing your plan, trusting that. And Lord, we even thank you for the trials in our lives because we know that through them you're deepening our faith, our trust in you. So Lord, go before us now and help us to live our lives by faith in your promises, not by sight. It's in Jesus' name we pray.